book of Matthew chapter 25 and verse 13. Jesus speaking says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And for just a little while this evening, I want to preach on this subject, reverent expectation. Reverent expectation. God bless you. You may be seated. encourage you to be uh, mindful of and prayerful for uh, Pastor Johns as he is district board meetings in the business of the Georgia district this week. God would give him physical strength and that God would give him wisdom and guidance. It was the uh, final week, the Passion Week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus and his disciples are leaving Uh, The temple in Jerusalem, they're headed to the Mount of Olives. And there they ask him two questions that have apparently been weighing heavy on their hearts and on their minds. In Matthew 24, these two questions are listed. The first was, when will the temple be destroyed as you just prophesied that no stone will be left unturned? When's that going to happen, Jesus? And the second question was, what will be the sign of your second coming and the end of time. We, we'd like to know that too. When's the temple going to be destroyed? That's a landmark and the icon of our faith, the Jewish faith at least. And uh, your return that you've talked about in the end of all time, when's that going to be? What's the sign? So Jesus began to answer their question. And in Matthew 24 and 36, further into his dialogue with them, he began to specifically answer that second question. What is the sign of your second coming and the end of time? Matthew 24 and 36, Jesus said, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. In verse 37 and 39 of uh, Matthew 24, He taught them that His return would be like the days of Noah, that there was no expectation on the part of those who were ignoring the message of Noah, and there was no warning on God's part when he was going to shut the door. It was just an ordinary day. But the door shut, and the rain fell. In verses 40 through 41, Jesus teaches them that on that day there will be a distinct division between those who are ready and those who are not. Two will be in a field... One is gone. Two will be grinding. One is gone. That's what it's going to be like on that day. And then signifying the eternal importance of everything that he's been talking about, Jesus then repetitively urges them to live with reverent expectation of his return. In verse 42, Jesus says, Watch Therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Gives a little short mini parable. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. If the thief announces the time of his arrival at your door, you don't need an alarm system. You will be ready. 
And then in verse 44, Jesus again says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Twice Jesus repeats, Watch, therefore, and be ready. You don't know when the Lord is coming back. In other words, Jesus is teaching them that you will never be able to predict when I'm coming back. You can read Daniel. You can read Revelation. You can press the latest headlines upon the scripture and seek to interpret some chronological timeline, but you will never be able to predict when I'm coming back. But, ready or not, I am coming back. So you disciples only have one responsibility. You just make sure that you are always ready for my return. 24-7, just be ready. You can't predict it. There's no magic sign. There'll be no tornado warning signals. You'll not have preemptive notice. You're not going to ever figure it out. It will, in fact, it will be unexpected. But you don't have to worry because it's certain. I am coming back. And all you have to do is just make sure you're always ready. And just in case that that wasn't clear enough, Jesus continues his answer. They asked. He's answering. Their questions are one verse. His answer is two chapters. So Jesus continues his instruction now. And he uses three parables to illustrate what he's already said and what he said multiple times. One is the certainty of his return. The second thing each parable illustrates is the uncertainty of when he will return. And the third thing they all illustrate is the eternal significance of being ready. Now, your time, my time, your attention and my attention prohibits that we examine all three tonight. Can you say amen? So I want to focus your attention on the second parable, which is found in Matthew 25 in verse 1. If you have your Bible or app, I encourage you to turn there. Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. This is the parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Weddings were one of the highlights of a village. Our knowledge of Jewish wedding customs of the first century is fairly limited. And the customs seem to be varied. So it doesn't help us to try to impose uh, what may have been or what should have been or what could have been happening. From the text itself, the parable teaches us and we understand that these virgins who were probably friends or relatives of the bride or bridegroom, that they had been invited to participate in the wedding festival and that their role apparently involved escorting the bridegroom with a torch or lamp-lighted procession to the wedding feast. That's what we know from the passage. They 
were a part of the festival and that that role apparently included carrying a lamp or torch in a lighted procession uh, by the bridegroom to the wedding feast. Jesus says, now five of them were wise and five were foolish. And those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now Jesus was a master communicator. And here he begins to tell a story that will powerfully illustrate a contrast between those who are spiritually wise and those who are spiritually foolish. Five of the virgins not only had their lamp, but they were prepared for the unexpected, and they had brought additional oil. Five, the other five virgins, they too had their lamps, but they were unprepared for any delay in the bridegroom's return, for they had no extra oil. So Jesus said, and continued his story in verse 5, But while the bridegroom was delayed, the unexpected, what was not anticipated, while the bridegroom delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Apparently, all the virgins must have assumed that the bridegroom was going to come early in the night. But it was not to be, for we know from Scripture, not the reason, not the cause. We simply know that the return of the bridegroom, his arrival for the wedding feast had been delayed, and he was not coming early as anticipated. And so all of the waiting virgins fell asleep. It was just a continuation of life. It was just the ordinary business of the day. He tarried. He delayed. They didn't know why, and they all fell asleep. But at midnight, when everyone would have been least alert, that cry announcing the arrival of the bridegroom pierces the steel night. And Jesus told the story that then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. All ten virgins, all of them sprang into action. They were all asleep. But when the cry pierced that night, they came alive. They leapt to their feet. They grabbed their lamps. They understood this is the hour This is what really matters. This is what it's all been about. And they trimmed the wick of their lamps so that that flame would burn brightly as they escorted the bridegroom to the feast. But tragically, 
It is in this moment of the story that the foolishness of the five is exposed for the world to see. For whatever reason we know not, but they failed to prepare and their folly was revealed. For to have a lamp without oil is like you would have a flashlight without batteries. It's just worthless. You can tote it around. You can pretend. You can say that you're going to lead the way. But if there are no batteries in your flashlight, you have nothing. And so to their horror and to their tragic realization, all that they had failed to prepare for comes up and they are exposed. They panic. They plead with the wise to share their oil. But it is too late and the wise cannot help them. It is the sobering reality as Jesus now begins to leave the story and move into the reality that the story portrayed. It is the harsh reality that Jesus uh, presents his disciples that every virgin was accountable for their own state of readiness, that nobody else could prepare for you, that nobody else can drag you along on their reserves, that you don't get to go to the wedding feast just because you know somebody who does have oil. You are accountable for yourself. And while they went to buy... The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Five foolish virgins, futilely and frantically rushing around in the midnight hour in a village in the near ancient east trying to find oil. And while they are in a panicked, desperate, hopeless effort to save themselves, the bridegroom came. And the five wise who had prepared and who had ensured that they lived with margin and reserves had escorted the bridegroom into the wedding feast And when all of those present had entered in, the door to the feast was slammed shut. Now that door being shut would have probably shocked the disciples. The disciples were a part of a culture that was very much an open door hospitality culture. The idea that the wedding party would slam the door shut and that no one else would be allowed to enter. It was foreign 
to their understanding. But Jesus intentionally shocks them. He intentionally tells a story in a way that does not go as they anticipated it. And he helps them to vividly come to the reality that when he comes, he comes and it's over. And if you are not in the party when the bridegroom enters, that door will be shut and no one will be allowed to enter in. The wedding feast was the high point of the entire celebration. You could be invited. You could tarry around the fringes. You could participate in some of the lead-up festivals and maybe dinners. But everything was leading up to the wedding feast. And if you missed the feast, it didn't matter that you were invited. It didn't matter that you had come. It didn't matter that you had a lamp. It didn't matter that you had on the garments. It didn't matter that you were scrambling to find your way all that mattered was that if you missed the feast you had missed everything that was it was all about at this point Jesus moves beyond the confines of a parable and he goes to the reality he had been illustrating He emphasized again here as he's done throughout 24 and will continue throughout chapter 25 the reality of the last judgment. That like the door to the ark, when the door to the feast was shut, it would never be opened again. And when those five foolish virgins return to a closed door and they plead with the Lord, please open, please let us in, please you invited. We came, we thought you were coming sooner, we didn't anticipate it would be this long, we just got caught sleeping and we were unprepared please let us in it is the Lord's answer that sent chills down the spine of his disciples and it should send chills down the spine of you and I for Jesus told them I do not know you an emphatic cry with the force of a judicial verdict that it represents that last day of judgment. The seemingly trivial lapse of preparation. It seemed insignificant. They had explained it away. It felt right in the moment. Surely God's love. Surely the bridegroom's mercy. Surely he's not going to come now. We'll just sleep. I know you have oil. I know I should have oil. But you know, you know, it's all going to work out. Somehow we'll figure it out in the good morning pie and pie. And it just seemed trivial in the moment. It seemed like a momentary lapse of preparation by the five foolish virgins but what was exposed is that all along they were living a lie they were in a false relationship with the bridegroom for no doubt the disciples may have remembered the words of Jesus near the end of his sermon on the mount when Jesus said not everyone who says to me Lord, Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? And have we not done wonders in your name? And then Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Like the pseudo-disciples of Matthew 7, the five foolish virgins, their practice did not match their profession. They professed to be in relationship. They professed to be ready. They professed that their life was about joining the bridegroom. But in their practice, while he delayed, their practice evidenced something else. They had been invited. They had initially responded. But they had not lived with a reverent expectation of the return of the bridegroom. They had professed a relationship, but they were practicing something quite different. They had heard his instructions, but they had failed to obey them. And his delay had put them into a false sense of complacency. And while they publicly professed allegiance to him, they had privately evicted him as the central focus of their life. The oil no longer mattered. They had lapsed in the value of making sure that there was oil in their lamps. Their preparation had become lax. Their love for the bridegroom had grown cold. They had become entangled in the business of slumbering in a midnight hour. And when the cry pierced the night, they were not ready. But he did return and those who were ready did join him in a marvelous wedding feast and the door was shut and the rebellion and the foolishness of the five was exposed I never knew you Jesus then said, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Five times Jesus said, watch, you don't know the hour or the day, just be ready. Just be ready. Jesus powerfully demonstrated to his disciples then, as his word does to us now, that God's delay is not what matters. What matters is that his return is certain. And therefore, it is of the utmost importance that you and I live in reverent expectation of his return. This sobering teaching and the warning of Jesus Christ deeply impacted the disciples. It marked the first century church in an undeniable manner. In fact, the early Christians lived with such a fervent anticipation 
of the soon return of Jesus Christ that when time be passed and Christians began to pass, at least the Thessalonians, there was this growing trepidation of what is going to happen because they've died before he's come back. So Paul addresses them in his first letter, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. He's like, chill out. He's coming. But your fervor is at such a pitch, you're in hysteria. So relax. Concerning those who've fallen asleep, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in him. Those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Paul said, they're, they're okay. They're with the Lord. They're not gone. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. But then we who are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So Paul guides them. He teaches them. And then he kind of fuels right back up that fervor to live with, an, with a reverent expectation that don't be deceived and don't be lured into complacency because in a moment and in the twinkle of an eye and with the shout of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up with them and we will meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with Him. Live with that expectation. But Paul did not stop there. Like Jesus, Paul realized that the Lord, the bridegroom, Jesus tarried. He delayed out of long-suffering mercy. And so Paul continues in chapter 5 to urge them in light of the certainty of Jesus' return that they continue to live in this reverent expectation. Paul said concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. You understand that. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. You're not going to know. You're not going to be able to anticipate it. It will be unexpected. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You don't know the day, but you are not in darkness. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. 
We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep spiritually as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Paul says, listen, he's coming in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to be like a thief in the middle of the night. And you will not know, but you do not have to live in some kind of shroud of darkness because what you do know is you know how to walk in the light. You know how to be ready. And if you are ready, then watch and be sober and be alert and for his return. Let us watch and let us be sober. Like Paul, Peter also warned the early church to live in reverent expectation of Christ's return. To live this day in light of that day. For Peter said in 2 Peter 3 and 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why does the Lord tarry? I don't know. The only hope or the only uh, thing we can even maybe see is that He's just a God of mercy. He's just a God of mercy. So you can be ready to go and you can wake up every morning and leap up and down hoping you'll get caught up in midair and Lord Jesus take us out of here. But God is a God of mercy. And in spite of your battles, and in spite of the trial you're in, and in spite of the persecution others may be in, God is a God of mercy. And because our world is filled with lost humanity, He tarries, He delays, He awaits His return. But it's not because He's forgot what He said. And it's not because He's, a, he's changed His mind. His word is certain. It is forever established. He's coming back in a moment in a twinkling of an eye but while he tarries it is because he is long suffering towards us but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, Peter writes, since all this will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Peter says, hey, if we believe that the day of the Lord will come and that everything around us is going to be dissolved, what manner of persons should we be in holy conduct and in conversation and in godliness looking for and hastening into the return of the Lord? Peter's saying, listen, if you say that you believe in Him and if you really claim that you're looking for His return, then you 
you've got to live with a reverent expectation. You've got to examine yourself and say, am I living today like it might be that day? Am I conducting myself in a holy manner? Is godliness being portrayed in my life today? I want to live with reverent expectation. The scriptures are indisputably conclusive. Jesus is coming back again. It is certain and it is soon. It is soon because it is certain. There's no 2017 reasons he's coming back in 2017. It's just certain and it's soon. And it's soon because it's certain. Therefore, for you and I in 2017, it is of the utmost and eternal importance that you and I as disciples of Jesus Christ live in ever readiness and with reverent expectation. Maybe you're asking, so what does it look like and how does that play out in my life? What, what does it mean to, be, to live with reverent expectation? Thank you for asking. To live in reverent expectation means that I privately and I publicly practice what I profess, that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. If my life privately or publicly causes confusion about what I say and what I do, I am not living with reverent expectation. Living in reverent expectation means that I not only hear and know the Word of God, but that I live out the principles and the practices of the Word of God. Living in reverent expectation emulates biblical discipleship where we take up the cross of self-denial and we consecrate all that we are and all that we do unto the Lord every day. Living in reverent expectation will be evidence in the stewardship of our time, our giftings, and our money and our resources. Does your checkbook display that you are living with an anticipation that he's coming back? Does your calendar evident that you are living with an expectation that he's coming back? Or does your calendar demonstrate that you believe that he tarries and he'll not come till morning time? Because an hour a week does not evidence that you anticipate that he's coming back. Or two hours or three hours do not evidence that. Does your calendar, does your giving of yourself to the Lord, does your finances evidence that you are expecting his return? Living in reverent expectations will be evidenced by our personal holiness, both inwardly and outwardly. It means, as Paul instructed Timothy, that as men we live our lives without anger, doubt, or cynicism. 
if you find yourself cynical about everything the preacher preaches, if you find yourself doubting whether the scriptures really say what they've always said, but now you're hopeful they don't say that anymore, you may not be living with reverent expectation. To live in reverent expectation, as Paul taught Timothy, personal holiness for women, that you live your lives with an inward godliness that will be evidenced through modesty and good works. If you find yourself fussing and fretting over whether it can be a little shorter, a little tighter, and you can trim that and paint that and sparkle that, I would suspect that maybe, just maybe, you have forgotten that the Lord is coming back soon and very soon. Living in reverent expectation equips you with an eternal hope in the certainty of God's word that according to the writer of Hebrews, it is an anchor of the soul. When you live with reverent expectation, you can go through hell on earth and your shoulders be squared and your face remain strong and your eyes resolute because you know that some glad morning we shall see Jesus in the air. I may be sick in this body but there's coming a day where there will be no sickness I may be weeping in sorrow today but there's coming a day where there'll be no tears I may be broken today but there's coming a day when there'll be no brokenness so when you live with reverent expectation there is nothing there is nothing that can come between you and your walk with God you can endure every trial you can can resist every temptation because you know that soon and very soon we are going to see the king. It is an anchor of the soul that he's coming back. It is certain because God always keeps his word. Living in reverent expectation means that you live a life of mission every single day. That you wake up every morning understanding that I am a living billboard. And everything I do and everything I am, what I say, my attitude is a billboard that is either attracting people to the power and the purpose of the gospel or my life is driving them away and kind of like, drive, you know, don't text and drive. You'll end up like a smashed piece of metal upside an 18-wheeler. That'll get your attention. That's not what you're called to be. You're not called to be a warning. Don't be a Christian. Don't follow all of the gospel is the saddest, most depressive, most binding thing you could ever do. You're called to be a billboard that simply says, eat more chicken. Come on, come on. This is the best thing going. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened. You can live with purpose. You can live with meaning. You can live with an anointing and power. Living with reverent expectation. Living with reverent expectation, understanding that God 
is coming back. And he didn't come back yesterday. And he didn't come back for my grandma. And he didn't come back for my great grandma. And he didn't come back before Peter died. And Paul was martyred. And Timothy went down. And your faithful grandma is gone. And your beloved parent is gone. And you've lost loved ones and they're gone. And they all believed. And they all looked for his return. But do not be in despair. And do not forget. And do not become into a state of complaint. Complacency. He is coming back. And he's coming back soon and very soon. Our worship team can come. Imagine that you knew. Imagine that you knew that Jesus Christ was coming back on April 15th at midnight. You knew. Number one, you wouldn't pay your taxes. But after that was taken care of, would it not be the highest priority in your life? If you knew that he was coming back at midnight, On April the 15th, would it not be the highest priority in your life? Would it not cause you to carefully examine yourself to ensure that there was no bitterness or unforgiveness towards anybody else? Maybe. Would it not regulate and govern your attitude? Would it not govern how you dress, where you went, what you listened to, what you watched, what entertained you, what you laughed at? I think you'd be pretty cognizant and very aware of everything. Would it not propel you to share the gospel with anyone at any time? Anywhere, if you knew he was coming back at midnight on April the 15th. Would it not cause you to have a holy boldness that no matter the deepest trial of your life, there would be this resolute faith and trust. It's going to be all right. He's coming back. He's coming back. No one knows the hour. No one knows the day, but he's coming back. It is certain. It is soon. So why not live in reverent expectation? Why not live today like it might be that day? And I know little blunt and straightforward in what it means to live in reverent expectation. But before you get offended and before you get bitterness in your heart towards what the preacher said, I just simply ask you, would it matter? Would, if you knew when he was coming, would it not govern everything you are and everything you do every day? Right? That's it. 
That is reverent expectation. That this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I just can't feel at home in this world anymore. That is what it means to live with reverent expectation. If you are able, please stand. Jesus said, concluding that parable and all the passages that would, had happened and would continue, his dialogue answering that question, what's going to be your sign of your return? He just said, watch therefore. You don't know. You know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is come. So just watch. And while he mercifully delays, you and I have a space of grace, as Pastor Johns has been preaching about. Tonight, you and I have a space to repent if we need to repent. You and I have a space to reconcile relationships that stand between us and being ready. You and I have the opportunity to again consecrate, consecrate all that we are and all that we do unto the Lord. You and I have the privilege to again recognize and live out that we are God's mission to this world to reconcile all things unto himself. That you and I every day have the privilege as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ living in reverent expectation that our lives can matter and our lives have meaning because we are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And we live our lives, as the psalm says, with clean hands and a pure heart because we want to enter into that city and be with him forevermore. And so we examine ourselves, we examine our heart, we examine our conduct, we examine our appearance, we examine our entertainment, we examine everything when we live with reverent expectation because soon and very soon we are going to see the King.